Welcome to the Axial Spondyloarthritis Podcast, hosted by me, Jason Sacco. I'm a longtime spondy looking to bring the community closer to give the community a voice. I'll be reaching out to organizations, doctors, nutritionists, and anyone that I think can help increase our spondy quality of life. Enjoy and learn what is available to make your life better. Welcome to this week's episode of the Axial Spondyloarthritis Podcast. Today I thought I would do something a little different. As many know, I've had multiple hip replacements, three on the left side, one on the right side. And it is an issue that people with AS can encounter. And so I thought I would bring on Julie Job, who has had a hip replacement, has ankylosing spondylitis. And I thought we'd kind of delve into the process behind how do you get one? Why do you get one? Leading up to the anticipation the scariness, everything. So, Julie, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Oh, it's so awesome. Except talking about hip replacement stinks that we've all had to have them, but it's great that it's an option. Yes, it is. You have ankylosing spondylitis. How did that come about for you? How were you diagnosed? How long did it take? You know, the more I think back, it, it just seems longer and longer because I couldn't connect any of these things because it would be my neck, my tailbone, then it'd go to my chest, the hip. You know, if you go to a doctor, they kind of want you to be there for one problem, not so many different things. So I do remember that when I was 15, I hated going to school. I could hardly sit. My sit bones and tailbone hurt so much. So I often have thought it started around 17 because that's when it started to affect my was training to be a professional ballerina. It probably did start quite a bit earlier. You know, I'd be getting cortisone shots. Chiropractors, that was excruciating for me. Yes. I did a lot of massage. It was very hard because, as you know, the symptoms come and go and they move around so much. So one day I'd be dragging my leg, unable to walk. And then the next day I'd be fine. And maybe three weeks later, it'd be the other side that hurt. I'd go to a doctor and the first thing they always would have you lie on the examination table. They bring your leg up towards your face. Well, they could push it all the way to my face. And they'd say, there's nothing wrong with you. Yeah, you've got flexibility like no one else. So what could be wrong? Yeah. So they say, you know, you probably need to work on these muscles getting stronger, this and this and this. So, uh, okay, I'll, I'll try that. And then I'd go for another thing and they'd say, there's nothing wrong with you over and over. And then I remember, I think I was 24. I was in Cleveland and I was doing Swan Lake and my chest have you had costochondritis with this? Yes. not You know, knock on wood, I have had maybe half a dozen flares from that area of my body in my whole life. Well, yeah, and I haven't had it too often. But when you're doing Swan Lake, of course, you have your arms out to the side and back. You're pushing your chest forward. And so, well, actually, I was sent to a cardiologist at Cleveland Clinic, and he didn't speak English that well, and he was kind of laughing and trying to explain, and he finally said, your wishbone hurts. It's your wishbone. Go down to sports medicine. So they gave me a cortisone shot, and I was fine. So it took care of that for a while. Then the back kept getting so much worse. I couldn't sleep. And you know, the crazy thing is you're at the Cleveland Clinic, which is one of the premier spots for axial spondyloarthritis diagnosis and treatment. And I just learned that from listening to one of your podcasts. I'm kind of amazed because I had to be in another country to be diagnosed and they spotted it immediately, which is really frustrating. 
you're dancing and you're you're going along and these problems like the muscle spasms that would come sometimes when you're being partnered they're lifting you under the ribs essentially had I had the energy sometimes I thought I was going to turn around and just punch the guy in the face why are you hurting me so much and I knew I had a high pain threshold because I'd been a gymnast for years several broken bones and different things but I did notice that I could hardly have the voice to speak to even tell the guy that he was hurting me. I get spasms and have a hard time taking a breath. I had to move back home when I was 25. I was engaged and my fiance at the time, he thought I had bone cancer. I mean, he had to help me out of bed. I couldn't turn over. I'd put my arms around him and he would slowly, inch by inch, help me to sit up in bed. And then I'd have the spasms in my back. And at that time, I started having all the diarrhea. I mean, I don't know if you had any of the colitis with yours. Never did, knock on wood. I mean, I didn't want to really tell anyone <laughs> about that. I didn't like telling people about any of this because you look young and healthy. Right. But I did start to lose weight rapidly, and I had a lot of muscle atrophy. In fact, I had regular massages, and I didn't go for a while. I went back, and my massage therapist said, oh, my God. And I said, what? And she said, all of the muscles in your back have atrophied. She said, it's bones. You're like just bones back here. So I, did, I just had to keep on going on, and I did have a lot of blood tests, and one doctor said, you're malnourished, but at the same time, everything else in your blood says you're the healthiest person on the planet. You mentioned that as you were lifted and moved around by these male dancers, it was hurting, but they're trained a certain way to pick you up, so they don't know. They're just doing what they're trained to do. Ballet itself, I never realized how brutal of a uh, discipline that that is. I saw some lady take her ballet shoes off one time and I was like, holy smokes, look at her feet. <laughs> they were just horrible. I mean, you don't think about it because you as a dancer are so fantastically trained. All those years you make it look easy and it's really anything but. So you're doing all this extremely physical ballet. You make it to the Cleveland Clinic. They don't diagnose you with AS when they're one of the premier spots because that's not what they were looking for. No. And then you continue on but nobody's put all this stuff together and then you end up over in Europe. Is that right? Yes. Sad thing I did. One of my partners was actually fired. The choreographer said she called me at 930 at night and she said, well, I've just told Danielle that he's done. My fiance was also named Danielle. He was from Belgium. I was like, what? What are you talking about? She said, I don't like the way he's handling you. And I thought, oh, no, he did have an attitude problem anyways. But she thought that he was really being rough with me when in fact, I knew there was something wrong with me, and I tried to tell her that. A lot of just really strange, sad things happened because I couldn't get anyone to these different problems together. But when I was in Europe teaching ballet, and one day I just I couldn't walk. I, I was bent forward at almost a 90-degree angle, and my husband was 15 years older, I think, and he said, this is ridiculous. We went to an orthopedic surgeon, and he actually did the thing where he pulls the leg up to you, and I still could do that, and I thought, oh, Great. But it was when I was trying to get off the examination table, he said, why are you moving like that? And I said, oh, my ribs hurt and I can't something, my back won't round. I just have a lot of pain. And he started asking me, he spoke French, unfortunately, but he said, I think we're going to have to do these CT scan, bone scan, all that. And then I went in and he said, you have this type of arthritis. I'm an orthopedic. I can't help you with this. At the time, I was getting ready to move to Scotland. What a great climate for AS. <laughs> oh, right. 
And so I found the best rheumatologist. The man is just amazing. I think he's one of the best doctors. He explained every single thing about it. Told me, you know, you're going to, it's a chronic thing. You're going to be on medicine forever and all that. And started sulfasalazine and those things. And I did start to feel better. I went in and I said, well, how come I still can't do this? My back won't bend. And he said, you have so much damage. We can't undo the damage. I said, but I'll go anywhere. Can't they laser it away? And he said, they could, but it'll come back. And I I want you to understand this is forever. That just blew my mind. To know I would never be well again, everyone has that same reaction. It's that day of reckoning for everybody that gets AS when they're told you have axial spondyloarthritis. And guess what? You're going to have it forever. And here's what's happening. And it's a shock. Mm -hmm. You and I are roughly the same age. And growing up when I was diagnosed in 1984, there was no such thing as the internet. Oh, no. You were lucky if you had encyclopedias that were newer than 10 years old. (laughs) You know, I I look at these forums like where you and I got acquainted on Facebook, and there's so many great things about it that can be learned. Yes. But at the same time, I can see as if I was a new person that was just diagnosed, I could see that that rabbit hole would really almost scare you into inactivity because you're like, what do I do? Do I do this? This person had this. Not understanding that what works for you, Julie, might not work for me and vice versa. And the only way to know what's going to work is unfortunately, you just got to start trying stuff until you find that right combination. See, I had assumed one day I would, someone would tell me what was wrong and fix it. And then I could dance again. At any rate, by this time I was right around 30 and I got pregnant and I had my daughter in Scotland. Did you notice a reprieve kind of from the AS when you were pregnant? I I hear ladies say that they notice a sometimes a massive reduction in their symptoms when they're pregnant. No, I unfortunately did not. And my doctor said, you know, I was scared about all the medicine. And he said, well, you know, if you want to be a martyr, that that's fine. I don't recommend you quitting all of these medicines at all. But I had to. I was so afraid. But no, it got worse. In fact, I got iritis when I was pregnant. Oh, that's a great thing to get. Oh, God, have you had that yet? Oh, yeah. I was at this point when I got mine, I was in Bay City, Michigan, for anybody that knows the Michigan area. And like so many people, I didn't know. Went to a ready med clinic. You have pink eye. Here's a couple drops. See ya. It wasn't pink eye. My parents, I was staying with them while I was in college, and my parents were took off for the weekend. They get back on a Sunday, and I'm just in excruciating pain. And so they're like, come on, off to the emergency room we go. Just luckily, there happened to be an ophthalmologist that had been called in for another procedure. It was funny. He was Dutch, so he had that Dutch accent. Uh-huh. You'll know, having spent time in that area, that it's just a different accent. And he walks in, and he looks at me, and he looks a little bit, and he goes, Oh, you got a hot one there. He goes, you're not going to like what I got to do, but I got to do it. Sorry, that was a terrible Dutch accent. It wasn't even close. But he put some numbing drops in my eyes. And the next thing I know, he's coming at me with a needle. And I'm like, what? Oh, wow. And he goes, your eye is so bad. I have to inject the medicine right in the eye. Otherwise, you're going to lose your eye. Oh, my gosh. He said, had you waited till tomorrow, the scarring and damage would have been to a point where you probably would have had little to no vision out of that eye. That's how bad it was. How many days did you have it before you went in? 
five or so, six. Unbelievable. You know, the one thing I can say about my version of AS mm-hmm. is anything it's going to do to me, it's going to do it fast and really hard, but it's going to clear up for a while. I, I don't know. Everybody's different. That came on really vicious, but it got fixed. Two summers ago, I kept thinking I would go out to my parents' house and I would be like, these damn gnats, this gnat will not leave me alone. And I'd be swatting at it in front of me. And finally, I walked into my mom's house, and I'm like, you got gnats in your house? And she's like, no, what are you talking about? I says, there's a black one. It keeps flying by. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, I think I got something in my eye. So I went to the local eye doctor. You know, I just walked in, and he says, sit down. He looks, like, oh, yeah, you got floaters in there. He says, that's what you're seeing. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's driving me insane. What is that from? I mean, is it just like a scar tissue thing or, or what is it? Yeah, it's basically the back of the eye. Mm-hmm. Mine has always been the back of the eye that's attacked. It's basically the back of the eye kind of crinkling up and pulling away. Oh, okay. And so it's little folds in the back of the eye. So it's not actually anything. They call them floaters, but it's not really anything actually floating in your vision. It's little creases that the light just hits at different times, so it looks like there's something floating in your eye. Wow. That's how he explained it to me. Axial spondyl arthritis is the gift that just keeps on giving. I mean, I just assume that every problem I have is related to this. In fact, I'd rather only go to the rheumatologist because I'm not sure even if I have a cold that it's not related to AS. It's funny. I don't. I have never taken any type of pain meds as far as opiate-type pain meds. I did, and we'll go into this about the hip release, but I did take Tylenol 3s for a while. Mm-hmm. That was probably about as strong as I got when I wasn't in the hospital. And it was really interesting because I made this kind of pact with my doctors, both my rheumatologist and my GP. And I said, if I call you and ask for a med, there's a reason. But I'm not going to just call you pill shopping. I've built a relationship with them now where nine times out of 10, if I call and say, hey, I need this, they say, okay, we'll call it in. You know, we do blood tests and we do all that fun stuff and I give blood to every doctor and all that good stuff. So they know if I'm asking for something, A, I've been taking it and B, you know, it's generally pretty mellow. Yes. Matter of fact, I had a standing order for prednisone and my GP asked me the last visit, he said, did you ever take that prednisone? And I said, nah, it's sitting in my medicine cabinet. He goes, throw it out. It's no good anymore. He says, we'll get you another vial because he wants me to have it just in case I get a bad attack. Right. There's those little things that I've built up. It works nicely. I really only take the Cosentix for my axial spondyloarthritis, so it, it works out well. But where we really came in to talk about was hip replacements. Yeah. You had a hip replacement. Would you mind talking about when, what hip, and what led to that? It was my right hip, and it was 10 years ago. It had been really, really bad for a long time. You know, I did all the cortisone shots. They said, it's just not going in. There's no space for whatever reason. The orthopedic surgeon I was going to was a friend of my husband's at the time, who was a doctor, and he was really well known for knee surgery. And he decided finally, yeah, we'll go ahead and do this. And he did posterior surgery. He came into the hospital room. You know how they do afterwards. They show you how much movement you have. And he said, see, no pain. But there was a lot of pain. Then I thought, I hope something didn't go wrong. 
things seemed to be okay. And I started all the physical therapy. There would be times that when a strange thing would happen, I'd be stuck. So I couldn't sit down. I could lie down, but I couldn't sit. I couldn't bring myself into an upright position. And there was a big bulge in the front of my hip, right around the pubic bone area. My husband at the time, he pulled, 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 pulled my leg out. And then I was able to get up and go. And I kept continued physical therapy. I did tell the doctor. That continued to happen over the next few weeks, and I think I went back to work teaching, and I followed all of the precautions, and he told me if it dislocates, it would go to the rear. That's where the surgery was. That's where you're vulnerable, so don't do these things. It happened. It dislocated at work, the wrong direction, anterior dislocation. That was probably three or four months after the surgery. They have to ambulance. You go to the hospital. They do. Have you had a dislocation? That's one thing I have not had. It's very painful. They were a little baffled that it dislocated in the wrong direction. So everyone at the ballet kept saying, your foot's facing the right way, but he must have put the other part on backwards. No one, it just didn't make sense. So we decided it was a one-off. Everything was going to be okay. Just continue physical therapy, et cetera, et cetera, going as you are. It happened again three and a half weeks later. Wow. That time. The doctor was an orthopedic and he said, don't go anywhere alone. Don't go Christmas shopping. Don't do anything because your hip can dislocate at any time. And I said, you're kidding me. And he said, no, it's jump of the whatever they've put it in. I had to have it redone. You know, I did radiation first because I'm sure you did that because of the scar tissue problems. Actually, unfortunately, no. Oh, okay. And that's what has created a lot of problems on my last hip replacement is because no radiation was done. The bone grew back over the the head, basically, and, and has limited my movement. Oh, gosh. I cannot straighten my thigh out to stand straight. And we always thought that that was a function of a ligament in the front of the leg not wanting to stretch back open. Yeah. And it wasn't. It was a process of the bone growing up and around the stem. If you look at a hip replacement, you've got that stem that goes in the femur. Yes. Then you've got the little piece that comes off that hooks to the ball, which is in your hip socket. Yes. Well, that bone grew up around that piece that goes into the ball of the socket and is restricted movement. I talked to a doctor. He said it is something that can be removed. So I may go in there and have them surgically cut all that off. It's something I'm contemplating. Oh, gosh. I did feel really good after the second hip replacement. I had a different doctor, the one I had wanted to go to originally, who was just younger. And, you know, he was known for having people out of, out and up in a much shorter time than all the other doctors in Richmond. That's where I lived at the time. But he said there was all this scar tissue built up around my sciatic nerve. So that had happened within six months from one surgery to the next. There was all this scar tissue, which he took care of that. I think there was something that happened in the revision surgery. Some bone was cracked through. I mean, the physical therapy had to be extremely gentle, and I had to be on crutches for eight weeks, not putting weight on it. So that was a complication. But I do think people with AS have really good luck with hip replacements for the most part, except for all the different bone growth and scar tissue. I never even did finish physical therapy for various reasons. And then I, I moved from Richmond to a smaller town in Lynchburg. But they did tell me just to be so careful with anything because some bone had broken. All they needed to do, I think, I wish I could remember all the lingo. They had to tilt something a different way and then put a bigger ball in. 
to make it so the dislocations wouldn't happen. Okay. So that's how that is. You've had the hip replacement done. Were they able to tell you, was that damaged from the ankylosing spondylitis or was that damaged from the ballet or a combination? It was a combination. Sometimes if you are very flexible and you lose flexibility, it's a good thing because you're a little stronger. When I was in my 20s, sometimes I was happy. Like, oh, I'm holding myself up a little better. I'm not looking like a piece of spaghetti or something. But my hip, I remember it's like 23 or something like this. I went to do an aerial cartwheel. Just that was like a thing I still did. And I didn't get around because my, my the legs just didn't open the same way. There was a tightness there. Is that where you jump out and put one leg in front and one leg behind? Yeah, it's like a cartwheel, a sideways, but you don't put your arms down. And I'd done it my whole life. Now I could hardly land, and it was because I'd lost some flexibility in that hip. So this is a lot of years, more than 20 before a hip replacement. Of course, the hips are really used in ballet. <laughs> So there is damage, definitely. I also had scoliosis, which made the hip somehow sit differently. When I was diagnosed at around 30, my whole pelvis was fused. I mean, even the bone in the front, which usually happens when you're like 80, that was fused. It was a combination of AS and osteoarthritis, yeah. Here you are as a professional ballerina. You've started teaching as well or have incorporated some teaching in various locations. You've had a child. You've done everything on your body and then some that you could ask your body to do. And you also have this ankylosing spondylitis, which is attacking your body from the inside. Yes. What next? Did you keep teaching ballet? Did you say once you realized you couldn't do some of those flexibility things, do you still incorporate that at all? Dancing, for me, stopped years and years ago. And I started teaching pretty full time, I think, just probably like 33. I, you know, I'd started teaching a little before that because I taught in Europe, but I, I, that wasn't a full-time thing. So yeah, no, I'd just been teaching for probably 15 years, only teaching before the hip replacement. If you're teaching ballet, I was used to, you know, there'd be a teacher, one teacher would have a cane and you don't have to dance to teach. You don't want your students actually to copy you so much. You should be watching them. You don't have to be fully fit as a teacher. One of my colleagues was actually 85 teaching still. <laughs> wow. It really, I don't think that that was hurting my body. I think it kept me standing up straight. Being around the young people kept me very happy. I told them that I hurt, and I didn't talk very much about what was wrong with me. I've never liked to say I have ankylosing spondylitis. People don't know what the heck you're talking about. True, very true. <laughs> when I would get worse, I started to do hot yoga because that was the only kind of yoga I can do was in the heat. And I kept thinking, this is helping me. This is helping because the parts that could still move were moving better. You know, I have fusion in my spine and I have some in the neck. I never felt like I was making the disease worse. I knew I didn't want to look like the pictures that I saw when I first looked up AS. And I saw the pictures and it was usually a picture of a man whose neck was, well, he was looking straight down at the floor. I just pushed because I had divorced. I knew that I had to work. And so I was teaching at um, a university. I taught there is just adjunct faculty, but I taught full time at this other big school that had a company. And sometimes I would be working day to night, sometimes till nine o'clock at night. And I just got used to the pain. I would take sometimes two Voltaren in a row or Diclofenac. I didn't always follow what I was supposed to do. Methotrexate helped me a lot. I suppose my body is pretty burned out now because I've stopped doing everything since that second hip replacement. I haven't 
taught a ballet class. I haven't done much of anything, but I still have hip pain and the side that was replaced is tight. I feel like because I didn't keep on moving, it never fully got back to the way it should have. You know, physical therapy, all of that stuff is hugely important after hip replacement. It seems like such easy exercises, the things they have you do. There's a reason for all of those, and it's really important. I regret that I never finished. I had a lot of things happen at the same time right after that. So think back to when you were told about getting a hip replacement because, you know, I've had them, you've had them. In our minds now, we're we're past that and we process that information a little differently. But when you were told, hey, it's time for you, Julie, to get a hip replacement, do you remember what went through your mind? What was the thoughts? How would somebody that's being told that now, you think, how should they approach that? like age dependent really affects you. And sometimes I think something about hitting age 40 is like you expect some problems then. I mean, I remember being less self-conscious about the way I looked once I hit 40 in general and if I limped. But for a younger person, I think it's kind of devastating. It's like one more thing. Does this have to happen? And there's that tendency to, to want to get more shots, more of this, more of that to solve it. But what the doctor sees on the x-ray is, is the fact you have to have it replaced. I think most people should know that usually that means life is going to be a lot better and a lot easier. You know, I had gotten to the point where I couldn't really shave my leg. I couldn't tie my shoes. I couldn't put on a shoe really by myself. So all of those things improve a lot when it's over. That is very true. Yeah. My first one was done when I was 21. Oh. And so that would have been 1991. There was this thing called AOL, but nobody knew how to use it. and Nobody had a computer at their house. <laughs> I look back and now, just before you and I started speaking, I went on to YouTube and I punched in hip replacement surgery. Yes. There's hundreds of videos on it. And I'm glad that those didn't exist before I went to have surgery. I remember going to the doctor and saying, let's do this. Just Give me a, there's certain things that were funny. I had never been in a hospital before except to be born. <laughs> when they give you, for my hip replacement, my first one, they gave me a spinal. Yes. You know, the same thing to what a woman would get it when she's giving birth. Uh-huh. So I could feel nothing from the belly down. So all night they're giving me straight shots of Demerol every few hours on my thigh to kill the pain. Wow. Life is good. Yes. All I'm thinking in my brain is I can feel myself urinating. <laughs> And I'm thinking, oh, my God, these nurses are going to hate me because I'm peeing in the bed. <laughs> I kept waking up in the middle of the night thinking, oh, my God, these nurses are just going to kill me. Right. But I don't feel anything wet, so it must be because of the spinal. Nurses are coming in all night, and they're emptying the catheter bag, but I don't realize that's mine. I don't even know what it is. Well, that's good. So <laughs> the next morning, the nurse comes in, and she's asking how I'm doing and everything. And I said, I'm good, but I'm so sorry. And she's like. For what? And I said, this is going to sound terrible, but I wet the bed all night long. She goes, no, you didn't. And I said, well, yeah. She goes, you have a catheter in. And I'm like, I have a what? I look up the sheet. And I'm like, where the hell did that thing come from? She goes, you've just been going in this bag on the side of your bed all night long. We've been emptying it. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is that thing? And who put it in? Yeah. I look back at those things. My roommate at this point who's in the bed next to me is dying laughing. That's how, just how naive I was. I, I just remember going to the doctor and saying, all right, what do we got to do? And he wanted, for many out there, if you get a hip replacement, a lot of times they want to do, I'm going to probably say this wrong, 
autologous blood, which is giving you back your own blood. In the three weeks leading up to my surgery, I gave three units of blood in three weeks. I was eating iron pills like they were Pez. The doctor's like, eat vegetables, eat red meat. I'm eating like a steak every day and salads and everything. He goes, because we're going to drain this out of you. You're going to be whipped by the third week. Sure enough. And at that point, the only options were to get a cortisone shot every so often mm-hmm. and naproxen. Oh, gosh. That were the only medication options. So you just dealt with the pain. Awful. But, you know, looking back, and I, I just thought that was normal. I had my first hip replacement done. The doctor x-rayed it, and he says, look, I want to tell you something. The new hip looks great, which was my left side. Mm -hmm. But he goes, your right side looks terrible. You will be back to see me within the next two to three years. Oh, gosh. And I said, okay. You know, again, too young and dumb to understand what he's saying. I remember going to him. I says, well, how long will this last? And he goes, I don't know. What do you mean? He goes, well, if we can get 10 years out, he says, you're only 21 years old. He goes, you're going to put a lot of use and abuse on this that when I do something to an 80-year-old, he or she doesn't do. Yes, exactly. He goes, I just suggest you don't go skydiving. Outside of that, do what you normally do. So I was like, okay. Luckily, that hip lasted done in 91, and it wasn't redone again until 2011. That's amazing. My right hip was done in 93 and still going strong. That's really lucky. I suppose my hip now, this hip with the revision surgery, will last a long time because the only thing I really do is walk. The first doctor said, if I give you this hip replacement, I hope you understand you'll never run again. I thought, what a rotten thing to say. First of all, I don't run. My ribs hurt. I said, so if a, if a murderer is chasing me, are you saying I can't run? And he said, you can run then, but I don't want you to do anything like that because you're young and you'll have to have it redone. So I think pick and choose the best doctor. I, I think a positive person who's young and doesn't feel funny to give surgery to someone who's younger. Right. Not every doctor is happy to do that. He wanted me to wait until I was 50, but I could hardly walk. Yeah, be responsible and don't go crazy after the hip replacement because when you do feel better, it's it's tempting. People don't realize you feel so much better. Yes. Not right after the surgery. You got to heal up a little bit. And, you know, one of the things I learned between my first and my second surgery, which was only a couple years apart, was how quickly they get you up out of bed. Immediately. Yeah. You know, I was brought into my room, settled down. Within about three hours, the nurse came in. She's putting socks on my feet. And I said, my feet aren't cold. She goes, no, you're getting up here in a little bit. I'm like, are you nuts? I know. And so it is really amazing, the physical therapy. I stayed each hip replacement. I stayed in the hospital seven days. But I know many people that are telling me they're in there for three days, four days, and they're they're gone. Yes, it's getting faster and faster. They give you the, well, the first doctor gave me these shots to give myself the blood clot deal. So you don't have a blood clot. Someone comes to the house and does the things with you that you need to do. And then it was after that that I went to physical therapy, which was a little bit more. You have to wait a certain time to start physical therapy, but they are first getting you to walk up the stairs sideways at your house if you need to do that. Just very basic things like that and teaching you how to do things differently, what you shouldn't do. That's a big thing is you've got to be careful the first, I usually say the first six months, eight months of how you bend over to pick stuff up. If you squat down to do something, you have to be very mindful because it takes that hip some time to heal. Absolutely. And of course, they cut through muscles and all of that stuff too. So yeah, the way to get out of bed 
has to be different. You can't do anything the same way for a period of time. But I, I do remember, I, I mean, I was walking much better, though I still had pain from the surgery. I felt like I could move better. I could stand up better. If somebody came to you, Julia, and said, they've told me that I should get a hip replacement. I'm scared, nervous. Overall, it sounds like you'd be very much of a pro to say, if they're suggesting you do it, that must mean you need it. Am I hearing that right? Yes, absolutely. Because I really regret that I was in pain for so long and didn't, you know, when the when the rheumatologist, and I don't remember exactly when, they said, it looks like, you know, you may be 38, 40 when you need a hip replacement. I do wish I had done it at 40 because I think I would have had enjoyed life more. So the longer you wait, I know that is a lot of doctors, older doctors have that thought in mind. Wait as long as you can. You know, when other of the pain specialists are telling you, we can't even get a cortisone shot in there anymore. And it just one of them, in fact, the cortisone went all through my body because he said, I'm sorry, it, it just there's nowhere to stick it. So doing that over and over, that creates a lot of other problems. I would almost say the second that they say that, just do it. Don't put it off because really the recovery is nothing. Mine was a problem because of the dislocations, but as a rule, people just bounce back so quickly. It's getting easier and easier. Exactly what you said. The doctors used to say, well, wait, well, wait, 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 you know, because it's a total hip replacement. But nowadays, if, if they catch it early enough, they can go in there and do those hip resurfacings in lieu of an actual replacement. I know some people that those hip resurfacings are almost an outpatient surgery. I did have one doctor because I did go to another doctor and he said, you know, it just, I mean, we could do that. But the fact is you you need a hip replacement. I mean, with AS also all the, what do they say, heterotrophic buildup or something, these things that happen with the scar tissue and the different processes of healing with AS complicate things like that. So I don't, know if it's worth doing that. You know, I really think it depends on how far along you are advanced. If it's minimal and it's mostly in the head of the femur and you're not seeing much damage in other areas, then a resurfacing might make a great alternative to a total hip replacement. But if it's a much more advanced issue, then it might be the doctor just says, hey, look, we're going to do a, a total hip replacement and be done with it. And kind of some of the funny stuff, you will set off metal detectors. That's always a fun thing to explain. <laughs> I set them off everywhere I go. If you fly a lot, you're going to get patted down a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's all sorts of things to consider as you go along that are just ancillary that don't really think about until afterwards. And in the show notes for this episode, I'll have a list to some questions that are answered by doctors that are kind of funny questions about embarrassing stuff I didn't think to ask. One last thing I want to say that is important for us is to have that, I think it's just two doses of radiation before the surgery is supposed to help prevent all these different problems, scar tissue buildup and et cetera. It helps to slow or stop the bone growth. I'm a living proof of what happens when you don't have that done. So I very much believe, like you just said, that that's something that's very important. Now, your doctor may tell you why he or she's not willing to do that. And if they have a valid reason... But if they're not even thinking about it or considering it, again, it's a situation where you have to be your own best advocate and you have to reach out and say, hey, we need to consider this or here's why I want this or here's why I think I need this. Let them tell you no. Let them tell you why they don't want to do it. At least bring it up. 
Julie, I really thank you for your time. I love getting others on to talk about their experiences with axial spondyloarthritis, their lifestyle, what led them to where they're at. And I think what you've shared is just so valuable for others to hear. Don't wait. You know, stay with what the doctor's telling you. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to share that with all the other listeners. Well, thank you so much. I, your show is great. Well, thank you. I'm so happy I found it. It's really helpful. Every episode, I, I'm learning something new. I think I've said this before. When I started the show, there was an entirely different premise of where I was going to go with it. Honestly, I didn't even know if anybody would listen. I started off and I did like eight episodes and I said, well, I don't think anybody's even going to listen. I'll throw them out there. I didn't really know about promoting them much. Uh-huh. So I said, here. Then I didn't record anymore for months. And I started getting some emails from people saying, hey, are you going to do any more? We like this. And I'm like, you did? I said, all right, I'll do a few more. And a few more became, it was hit or miss in 2019 because I was dealing with some issues with my father as he got sicker. My dad passed away. I said, I need something to do. And so I just started doing these on a weekly basis. And I was like, I don't know if anybody will listen. They are. And I, it's just amazing to see. I have a regular listener in Bahrain. <laughs> I don't even know if I could pick Bahrain out on a map. That is amazing. Algeria, Belgium, Morocco. I'm getting these listeners coming in from Hong Kong. Really amazing. Well, I love um, I love the ones from Canada. Yes. Because you know how their system is so different. That's been really interesting. Yeah, I've really wanted to delve into talking with people that are under different healthcare systems to see how they deal with the AS. Because I know how it is in the United States. I can tell you how I've dealt with it. But to hear somebody from Canada or England, right now those have been the two main ones. I hope to talk with some Australia and these different areas and hear what they deal with. It's like, wow, that's really a huge difference. Well, thank you so much. Is there any videos on YouTube of you dancing? (laughs) I hope not. I thought that'd be really cool to see. Well, it wouldn't because a lot of the time, part of the time, I was pretty crippled and I was still determined, like, I will be healed one day. I'm not going to stop. That's the way it should be. That I see more people with AS that are some of the most determined, stubborn, uh, whatever words you want to use, people yes. to make sure that they're going to do what they want to do, regardless of the pain. So kudos to you for doing that. You did what you wanted to do. And I thank you for your time. I can't wait to hopefully talk with you again in the future as we look at more episodes, hopefully on hip replacements and things of that nature. I really appreciate you sharing your story. Thank you so much. I loved it. You take care.